The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wednesday, August the 11th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff. Hi, guys. Morning. Hi, Hugh. Um, last week, we were discussing the grand sweep of American politics with Suzanne Lynch, so we didn't actually get the chance to tease out the details of some of the recent political developments closer to home. So that's what we're going to do today. And I suppose, Jen, we have to start with the backwash or the aftermath or the last legs of what has come to be known as Saponagate. Yes, or Marion Gate, depending on which Twitter hashtag you follow. I mean, it's worth reminding ourselves, you know, why exactly this became an issue and, and, and why it is such a big story. And that's because in the very last cabinet of the year before the summer, um, the uh, government rubber-stamped the appointment of Catherine Zapona, special envoy for freedom of expression. It became very obvious that this was problematic when the, it emerged that the Taoiseach at that cabinet uh, was blindsided and had no idea that this appointment was coming to the table. And that became sort of the story the next day. And it sort of took on a momentum of its own because all through the last year of government, um, we've seen Sinn Féin in opposition and they've pledged to be, you know, the most effective and, and outspoken opposition that there has been in the history of the state. And they have made it very clear that their message about Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, uh, lesser so the Green Party, but Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, is that they're two parties that are the peas in a pod, that they are representing an elite, that they are in an insider circle and that they all look after each other and that there's a lot of cronyism and, and political strokes and all that kind of stuff. And, and we've seen those charges levelled across the floor of the doll many, many times. And I think when this appointment came up on the very last cabinet of the year, it was perfect uh, opportunity for them to actually say, well, look, here is an example of this. And people did want to know what was the process behind appointing Catherine's poem, because obviously she was a minister in the last administration um, and was quite quite close to the Fine Gael ministers in particular. It became pretty apparent very quickly that there was no process in place, that this was something that was, I mean, Simon Coveney said in a very uh, cranky interview that it wasn't a makey-uppy job was the phrase that he used. But the fact of the matter was there was nobody else considered for it. Um, and there was a bit of confusion around, did she put herself forward or was she approached by Simon Coveney or how did it work? And we actually still don't know 
the full details of, of that. And I'd say journalists across the country are flat out pouring in the FOIs to the different departments to try and get the, the paper trail and get to the bottom of exactly what happened there. Um, so the story is kind of, not, I wouldn't say trundling along, but definitely rolling along at a normal pace. And we got to around day 10 of the of the saga. And that's, you know, when people like Alistair Campbell say that if you're still a story on day 10, then you're political toast. Um, and, you know, then it came out via the Irish Independent that she had attended or organised an event in the Marion Hotel for around 50 people, which was attended by Leo Varadkar, Ivana Bacic and Donald Gagan of the Green Party. Um, and that this came at a time when there were ambiguity around the rules for outside gatherings. Um, restaurants and hotels had no idea you could have up to 200 people outdoors. And then we had the extraordinary intervention of the Attorney General via the government uh, information services saying that he clarified you could have two, up to 200 people outdoors and then the claims that that was a politicisation of the Attorney General's office. It was kind of an extraordinary turn of events really um, and of course where it left us all was that Catherine's Pone stepped down from that role um, as special envoy. I think she cited the criticism of the role um, and questions then were asked about who else was at that party and um, you know, how come there was so much ambiguity around the rules and what does this mean for Leo Varadkar? As Tanisha, and now of course they've all gone on their holidays they, I wouldn't say they're in hiding because in fairness, they are all off on, on holidays and it has been a, a very bruising 15 or 16 months for them. But I get the impression that this story isn't finished. I get the impression that this is not the end of what we're going to hear about it. And I think it will rumble on into the start of the Dalton term because the Oireachtas Committee on Foreign Affairs want to sit down and bring in Simon Coveney and ask him all the questions, like the outstanding questions I mentioned around how exactly this came to be. Yeah, Jack. I mean, there's a, for for what in my view is a relatively small story in reality, there's an awful there's an awful lot in there, including what the what the job was in the first place, which you know is still unclear to me. I'm personally not that perturbed by the fact that even though, as Jen says, it gives Sinn Féin a stick to beat Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil with about cronyism, about an appointment of this sort being made in this way. In, in my knowledge, th- there's been appointments like this, cultural ambassadors and stuff like that, which have been made in the past on the basis of people being on the ground in certain countries. And that's where Saponi lives in, in New York. But then there's all this stuff about conniptions within Fine Gael, people leaking, people getting caught out leaking, that what seems to be more more interesting about it, and the use of the Attorney General as well, which raises some big questions, is a sense that um, that this is a kind of indicative of a certain malaise at the highest ranks in Fine Gael. Is that a correct read, do you think? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think that, that one of the key takeaways from the fallout of all this is that everyone is kind of annoyed about, with Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar about this. In the first instance, with Coveney for either not identifying the political risk attendant to this or uh, trying to kind of slip it in at the last minute on a cabinet agenda and hope nobody noticed. So, like, it wasn't apparently on the cabinet agenda that was circulated in advance of cabinet. It wasn't kind of taken out for a walk or socialised with advisors beforehand. And apparently the first time Michal Martin heard about it was when it went to cabinet. So you have the kind of Fianna Fáil side of government very annoyed about this. And, you know, as I understand it, Ministers are furious over it um, and you also have a slightly more interesting dynamic whereby a lot of people in Fine Gael are annoyed about it as well. It's not universal, but there is anger out there and I think that it kind of comes back to a sense that the kind of leadership of, of Fine Gael 
has been in cabinet, including Simon Coveney, for you know a decade or so, and perhaps they're that little bit detached from the backbenches and the grassroots, and they're not able to kind of d- detect things that will be politically problematic for people in those ranks as and when they kind of come up to to leadership level, and um, and then that that annoyance has extended across to the fact that Leo Varadkar was at the the Marion Gate event, and certainly in Fianna Fáil, there's huge resentment of the fact that like they see this a lot of people in Fianna Fáil see this as the second time in a little over a calendar year where Leo Varadkar has done something that they've kind of had to throw themselves on the grenade afterwards the first being the leaking of the GP contract Uh, something that would be of the scale to be a very serious problem for a normal cabinet line minister um, but because Varadkar is who he is and this is the take that's being offered because Varadkar is who he is and because he's a leader and because anything that affects him affects the stability of the coalition they have to go out and bat for him and they're not happy for it and they're not happy that last week uh, other than Colin Brophy and Sean Kine who aren't kind of A-list A-list kind of media performers usually there was no Fine Gael cabinet minister put out it took until Saturday and then the uh, the Taoiseach put out a statement, so it's Fianna Fáil minister putting out a statement, and then Jack Chambers goes out on Sunday to talk about it, and Fine Gael are nowhere to be found until, I think it was Monday or Tuesday this week, when Pascal Donoghue comes out. There is also deep resentment, and you know people are on the record about this. I mean, Timmy Doody gave, gave us quotes about this last week, and I think Willie O'Dea was in the Sunday Independent talking about it as well. There's great annoyance around the kind of what people see as the the kind of the reverse engineering of attorney general advice to for, for political expediency. So the Government Information Service put out a statement last week outlining effectively how the uh, the event in the Marion was in keeping with uh, with regulations. Uh, and then Leo Varadkar put out a statement that made this point even more bluntly. You know, he was saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, if you look at the attorney general advice, it was okay. And people are very annoyed about that. They see that as the politicization of the role of the AG. And and overall, when you take a step back from it, it's it's more than end of term crankiness. It speaks to more kind of profound issues about coherence and commonality of purpose and all those kind of old issues that have plagued the coalition from the get go. And it shows that all these things are just under the surface at all times. And it can take something relatively minor where if that minor incident is mismanaged and mismanaged in a serial way across the several different phases and several different news cycles, it can really become a problem that extends beyond grumpiness and and, and can undermine undermine the coalition more substantially than that without undermining it fatally. I don't think we're at the point, even though you know some some people have been kind of excitedly suggesting always oh, there going to be a heave or something like that. We're not at that point, but we are somewhere between that point and just normal levels of grumpiness. Yeah, I mean, I remember this time last year, uh, Jen, you know, every, everything seemed to be going wrong for the then still very, very young government. And one of the things I think that happened was then August came and there was the, you know, the political catastrophe for the government of, of Golfgate and, and, and various other issues. But it seemed to give them, I suppose, a kick in the arse, ultimately. And they did then get their act together as they moved into the 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 autumn period and seemed to kind of everything seemed to calm down and everything seemed to get a little bit more competent. Is there some chance that this incident, however important or unimportant it is in itself, might have a similar effect this year? Yeah, I think it will. Um also I think it's almost unfortunate for the government in a way that the story landed and that this happened right at the entrance to what we traditionally deem silly season, which most people will know that's when you start seeing stories in the papers about, you know, 
a new um, a new panda in Dublin Zoo, all that kind of stuff to fill. The, it's very difficult to fill those pages during summer. Um, that wasn't the case last summer, in fairness, with COVID and, and other issues. But yeah, I think it, it came at a time when political correspondents and everybody else could all collectively look into the story and dig into it together. And, and that gave a kind of a bigger prominence as well. Um, but I think it's... It might not be an issue, a massive issue going into the new term. Like I said, I do think it will live on for quite some time, but it will be one of many things that are added to almost the file, if you know what I mean. And, you know, the phrase, there's the straw that breaks the camel's back. This will be one of the straws, I think, that add up to the entire bail. Um, and it leaves a, a, a long term impression, I think, um, if you take it away from I suppose the internal, you know, machinisms in, inside Leinster House, it, it does leave a lingering effect on the public perception of Fine Gael and of those ministers and of how a government and does its business. Um, so I think that's a that's a real problem for them. Can I ask you, Jen, is there a real malaise within Fine Gael? I mean, any party that's been in power, as Fine Gael has been for 10 years, uh, tends to have to confront problems of of hubris and detachment from the way normal people read their lives, lead their lives. And then I have an added sense when I look at the most senior levels of, of the party at the moment. Um, they had very, they've had two very bad elections, one after the other, and there doesn't seem to have been a proper post-mortem in either case. And I get the sense when I look at Leo Varadkar, possibly Pascal Donoghue as well, that they lose the next election. They're not necessarily committed in the long haul to the party. There's probably other things they'd rather be doing. Yeah, a lot of people have the impression as well, that impression too, that they're the senior politicians like Leo Varadkar, Simon Coveney, Pascal Donoghue, that they are eyeing up, you know, a big job in the EU and, and that they see their fortunes beyond politics. And I think a couple of years ago, Leo Varadkar kind of fell foul of this when he was talking about he didn't see himself in politics beyond a certain age or beyond a certain date, which made people, you know, gave rise to accusations that he was only in it for, you know, short term, a short termism kind of goal. Um, I do I do agree with you, actually. I do think there is kind of a hubris. I definitely think there is almost an exhaustion that they've been in government for so long. They're so used to it. Because I remember in the last election when different parties were trying to form a government, if you remember, Fine Gael stood back and said, well, that's that election result. That's us destined for the opposition. Now we're going straight into opposition. And people speculated at the time, is this just a tactic so that they can give Sinn Féin the chance to try and form a government and then fail uh, and, and put them out front and centre? while they wait for their next turn, basically. But I definitely got the impression at the time that they were kind of hands in the air going, right, well, that's fine. We're going into opposition. That's where we're destined to be. Um, and then, of course, look, we had the, the pandemic. Um, that changed everything. And I think that revitalised people in Fine Gael as well. Like, they found themselves on the side of the public for the first time in a long time, I think, because they did actually um, get widespread backing for how they handled the pandemic in the early days. Like, if you remember the incredible turn of fortunes for Simon Harris... You know, he was, I would say, by some people credited for bringing down the last government in that there was emotion and no confidence due in him and that the independents, the government had lost the support of those key independents. And that was it, really. That was when we had the Leo Varaka calling the, the general election. He went from that position to being one of the most respected ministers by the public. I mean, if you go onto his Instagram page now and look at the comments that are left under his stories about being on holidays or the, the day's work he's just done, they're all like, you're brilliant, you're great. It's like incredible. You don't see that on social media. You just don't. And I think he has that kind of, no, I wouldn't call it a fan base, but definitely sort of a long running respect. And I think they had that reversal of fortunes during the pandemic. And now they're coming back over to the other side where, you know, people are looking at them and thinking, is this more of the same? And I do get the impression that some of them think, well, look, worst comes to worst. I've been doing this job for a very long time. I can get another job somewhere else. Um, but there are there are the backbenches in particular, I think, are upset at how the story is played out. And 
there is another element too about Catherine Zappone and Fine Gael. Like if you remember a couple of years ago, it was Catherine Zappone who contradicted Enda Kenny and it like basically eventually led to his downfall when they were talking about who knew what about Tusla and Morris McCabe and that, that awful saga. Um, and there are many people in Fine Gael who think that she was instrumental and that she caused a massive blow in their credibility uh, and that here she is again uh, for this role that's, as some, some TDs say, isn't massive pay, creating this massive controversy. Um, so there's an element of that too, kind of of them stepping on the same trap again uh, and how much it, 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 how much it means for the leadership of Leo Varadkar remains to be seen, I think. Yeah, I wonder now as we we go into the next political calendar year and we approach this handover, this sort of unprecedented handover from from one party to another, whether those tensions both within Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil will will will, will start coming more to the fore or, or resurfacing. But but Jen mentioned COVID there, uh, Jack, and it hasn't gone away as we know. Numbers are increasing, um, both in terms of overall positive tests and to some extent hospitalizations. Also, we're in a kind of an interregnum. There was a lot of fuss and bother in June about the regulations brought in in relation to opening pubs and restaurants and all the rest of it. Um, I gather Neffet isn't meeting for the next couple of weeks, but the government has promised a significant announcement in relation to regulations in the autumn to come before the end of August. So that's really not that far away. Yeah, it was an interesting little breadcrumb that they just kind of slipped into the statement that went out last Friday after the Cabinet COVID subcommittee met where they said that effectively uh, before August is out, a roadmap for the easing or removal of remaining restrictions will be published. There's going to be a particular emphasis around live events, sporting events, arts and culture and so on, um, and a kind of return to normality and what has been trailed or, you know, a return to a a more normal version of the new normal, (laughs) if you bear with me. Um, And what has been trailed is that there's going to be a kind of a, a mass simplification of regs and guidelines and all the rest of it, partially flowing from the Ferrari that followed over uh, Marion Gate and, you know, regs and guidelines and advice and law being in conflict at different times. You know, there is this kind of insane mishmash of all of the above interacting over how we live in COVID times. So I think they're going to try and move to a more simplified stance where, you know, some things aren't allowed, but, but many things are. And you might not get kind of, you know, nitty gritty guidelines on every single iteration of human activity ranging from going to the cinema to to holding a wedding that may be the direction travel that we're moving in we have to wait and see what they come out with at the end of august but i think that could be a an interesting and and significant moment and we're going to start to see i think in the next kind of 10 days two weeks the uh the various constituent parts of the covid policy making machine coming back together to start thinking about that so there was supposed to be an effort meeting that last week it's, it was cancelled effectively because there's nothing substantial to, to, to think about at the moment in terms of changing policy. Um, there's no COVID subcommittee this week, but there is one next week. And then I think the following week after that is when we'll, we'll see NEFIT meet. So that's the week beginning, the 23rd of August. And uh, then we'll probably see a COVID cabinet subcommittee meeting and perhaps a full cabinet then the, early the following week. So we commencing the 30th of August to think about these kind of things and also to think about the most important thing that the government faces in the next little while and the biggest risk they face in the next little while, which is the reopening of schools. And there is nothing to suggest that the reopening of schools at the moment is in danger, but we are at a very tricky and unprecedented time 
in the kind of broad span of COVID history, whereby we have case numbers, which at any other stage would have us absolutely 110% in lockdown. But because of the effect of, of vaccines, we're actually still moving in, in, in an unwinding direction. And trying to figure out how those two things interact and, you know, what a meaningful level of COVID hospitalization is in a, in a world where you're still running non-COVID care and scheduled care and all the rest of it and trying to figure out where the new thresholds and where the new kind of danger points and inflection points are when lockdown isn't on the menu is is, is a tricky thing that the kind of the, the centre is thinking about at the minute. So that's the kind of COVID scene as we head back towards big set pieces like reopening schools. And do either of you have any idea what the general sense is, either in the political establishment or indeed the medical establishment on that? I mean, Jen, as Jack says um, there, the, I think the word used by the government flagging that, that there'll be some decisions made by the end of the month was easing. And the general implication is that, you know, that these numbers are high, but things are different now because of the vaccine. Delta operates in a different way. You look across Europe at other countries um, they're doing all kinds of things that we're not doing. My arts and culture editor hat on, I've got to say, it seems bizarre to me that, you know, 150 people can pile into a pub, but only 50 people are allowed into a theatre or a cinema that might have a capacity of a thousand people. So there's all those sorts of anomalies there, which are causing more and more strain. So is the general sense, yes, that despite the direction of travel of the numbers at the moment, we will get a further easing as well as a simplification announced by the end of August? Yeah, I think so. I think um, the first thing, obviously, they look at is the trajectory of the disease, not only where we're at now, but what the modelling predicts. And we can see now that the, the case numbers, they're high, but they're relatively holding steady. Um, you know, they haven't reached those kind of stratospheric levels we were at in January, thank God. Um, the, what they're really keeping an eye on, though, is the, the level of hospitalisation and the level of um, admissions to the intensive care units. Those hospitalisation numbers have been creeping up very slowly. And then they kind of steadied a bit it's not uh, exponential growth, but it is still enough to to make them concerned. ICU numbers are remaining like pretty steady. And I think that that's given them great cause for, um, I wouldn't say celebration, but definitely relief. Um, and so they look at the disease trajectory. They look at what the, and the modelling shows and that they expect that we haven't peaked yet and that we will peak somewhere around the end of August. Um, and that once we get past that peak, you're kind of you know, on the next path here. So once you take into account the disease, then they have to look at the, the vaccination programme, the campaign. And we've seen, now, I think it's 89% of adults have been offered uh, or have had at least one dose. Um, and somewhere in the 70% for adults uh, having had been fully vaccinated, which are incredible numbers, really. And nobody expected that we would be here this soon um, in August. And to the government's great credit, and particularly the health service, really, uh, is, that, is that we are here. So you take the, the disease trajectory, you take the um, vaccination programme and then look at what remaining restrictions we have. And like you said, Hugh, the remaining restrictions we have are in the live entertainment sector, the arts sector, uh, culture and arts sector, uh, offices, obviously working is, is another big area and indoor activities. Um, these are the, the, the biggies that are kind of remaining. Um, and the plan is at the moment, keep all the restrictions for August till we get past that peak that they're expecting. Wait till the disease falls, uh, disease levels fall. Keep up with the vaccination campaign maybe get as many as 12, 15 year olds vaccinated as possible ahead of them going back to school, as Jack mentioned, schools, um, and keep all those other measures that we have at the moment, like testing, tracing, isolation. Uh, and then, of course, we have the booster campaign somewhere down, not too far down the road, but 
just in, just within sight. They want to take all those things together and then what they will do is at the very end of August release what they're calling a roadmap. So what you can expect to see from that is those different areas I mentioned, plans for how many people can um, attend those events, um, at what stage, when that will increase, um, what the situation is about working from the office. Many people want to know that. And of course, any remaining restrictions on indoor activities. So you expect it to be very quiet until you reach a peak and you know, they won't be too alarmed that the figures go up too much. It's what they expect. Uh, and then afterwards in September, you know, the idea that we're being given is that this is the, the next phase of, of the pandemic. And please God, there's not a, some gamma variant or something like that to go and throw a spanner in the works at that stage, you know. Well, indeed. And uh, and Jack, I suppose, you know, you look across the water and actually the, um, the British government or, or the English government in this case first, and then the Scottish government, you know, started relaxing measures while the numbers were still on the increase due to the Delta variant. And they continue to rise and the UK government was willing to take that on board. And now they've gone down and they've plateaued and they certainly, they, they, they still seem to be on a downward curve. Any chance that the Irish government will therefore end up announcing its own Freedom Day? Um, I don't think, I don't think Michael Martin is in a kind of Boris Johnson Freedom Day mould, to, to be honest. I think he's way too kind of instinctively conservative to do something like that. But like, look, you talk to people at the centre of government and the hope, nay, expectation is that the path of infection will proceed along the same lines as as the UK, where you had this peak. Uh, they didn't really change course and it seemed to collapse anyway. Um, and you talk to people at the centre of the kind of healthcare response and they're a little bit confused by this. You know, they're kind of trying to muddle through exactly what happened. I know that in Scotland, they're basically putting it down to the football. <laughs> it's people, you know, it's the Scotland in the Euros and people going out a lot and people going down to London and, and disease spreading associated with that and when people when Scotland were some would say inevitably knocked out of the Euros uh, that kind of that 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 step back a little bit and also there seems to have been a kind of um, a wider sense that the population got a bit spooked by the level of disease that was out there and changed the way they were socialising and that's one of the theories around why cases came down I mean it's 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 funny it's hard to read too much into the case totals here because they're not, as Jen said, it's not exponential growth. It seems to be this kind of gear shift growth where you get a jump every so often uh, associated with probably with something that happened about 10 days beforehand. So we had a jump to 1800 uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of last week, and that's probably indoor dining. Um, but then it doesn't really grow or it drops down again like it has in the last couple of days and people are trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And uh, not really, not people. They don't really know. And um, they could be. It could be a behavioral thing. Um, and trying to square all those various circles and 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 figure out what the disease is going to do next, and figure out how that interactive policy is is obviously a, a core challenge at the moment. The most important news story was none of these, by the way. I, I would say, Jen, today it was the very stark warnings issued this week about the uh, sooner than expected and in fact immediate uh, impacts of climate change happening right now and even more foreboding warnings about what's coming down the line unless we do something about carbon. Yeah, and I, I think that report that came out, you know, it's obviously a major report, huge involvement um, from across the world to get that over the line. And I think it terrified people a little bit because, you know, when you see code red for humanity, uh, right when you're hopefully coming out of a pandemic, I think there's a lot of people who thought, oh, great, that's exactly what we need now, a code red for humanity. But I think um, th there is a realisation and there has been a realisation in government for quite some time that this will be one of the most difficult tasks that they have um, in every way um, coming into the next couple of years, uh, married alongside the housing crisis, obviously. Um, and I think... 
the the big task for the government in light of this report, which shows that you know they're basically we are driving this problem, you know, categorically stating that factually, um, and that much of the climate change we're seeing could be irreversible. Um, what we're going to see the government do over the next couple of weeks is they're going to come out with a series of different plans. They'll have firstly the National Development Plan, which will set out, which basically that just says which department's projects are going to go ahead, be funded, etc. And then you'll have the climate plan, which will be a biggie. And then you'll have um, the budget. And the big task, I think, for the government will be to explain to people exactly what it is that needs to be done in a way that isn't full of jargon. Because I think so much of the climate um, conversation can be filled with stuff that people, not that they don't understand, but the nitty gritty of it, like, I mean, people have busy lives and jobs and families and all that. I mean, it's it's not fair, I think, to expect people to understand all of the detail. So I think their their job will be to explain exactly what sectors need to change and exactly what they need to do themselves. And also to be like we saw through the pandemic, through the very dark days, one of the most important thing to do is to offer the public hope um, that this thing, you know, isn't beyond control, that we can get on top of it. And they'll have to do that as well with the climate change. Um, debate. And I had a conversation yesterday evening with John Fitzgerald, who formerly chaired the Climate Advisory Council and is still a member of that council today. And he kind of talked to me through some of the, you know, basically some of the some of the basics, I'd say, on, on what exactly is going to be needed. And he talked about for the thing that will impact on people the most is heating and their own homes. And he was saying that we need to get the vast majority of homes up to a B2 standard. Um, and that would mean putting in a heat pump. And he was explaining even like a heat pump only produces water at 40 degrees, not 70 degrees. So you also have to insulate the home. You maybe need to go under the floors and put in um, underfloor heating. So he's saying that kind of investment is massive. It could be anywhere between 25,000 to 50,000 per household, which could be an all in all a cost of 15 billion. And he was saying that like households would probably have to pay for the vast majority of that themselves because from digging around yesterday, what the government are planning is they're looking at different options for um, households. So it could be that you were given a long term, low cost loan or you could be offered like a green mortgage, which incorporates the price of, of doing that. But at the end of the day, you'll still have to pay that back yourself. You can have government subsidies, of course, but if the government was to fund the entire thing itself, uh, I think there is an, an acceptance that that's not possible, that you need more than exchequer funding. You're going to need people to make this step change in their lives themselves. And you have to find, the government will have to find a way to convince people that un, this is worth doing uh, to help people who can't. They'll also have to invest in the social housing stock themselves, naturally. Um, and this will be one of the biggest things he was saying around telling people about what they can do themselves. And then kind of talking me through the different areas, obviously, in terms of electricity, in terms of agriculture, um, and all those different areas. And it, it really is, the task is absolutely massive. But his message was, it's doable if the right actions are taken at the right time and if the government finds a way to sell this. And the other thing as well is, is we're dealing at the moment where you have certain parties that are accused of populism. Um, and you have to ask yourself, how does a populist message where you say, I don't support any measures such as an increase in carbon tax because we don't support, like say Sinn Féin don't support an increase in carbon tax because they say that's punitive uh, on householders. But the fact of the matter is any measures taken to address this are going to be punitive on everybody. So how do you marry that into politics where it, they, they're not necessarily good bedfellows? And how do you get politicians to think that they can actually sell this message to people when you and I both know that that's what politicians want to do. They feel if they can't sell something to someone, they're not going to get elected or not going to keep their seat. Um, and it's a huge, huge challenge. And and 
Um, I think as as time goes by and hopefully we move away from the pandemic and hopefully they make inroads with the with the housing crisis, this is the big big issue. Yeah, Jack. I mean, I was reading some of those quotes from John Fitzgerald in 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 this morning's Irish Times, and you know there 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 are facts tossed in there which are just hugely problematic for any government, and this one in particular. Like he talks about how the number of skilled contractors who would be needed to do this retrofitting in the country. Basically, it would cut back enormously on the country's capacity to deal with the housing crisis. And then there's the there's the whole question of the transformation of agriculture, which you can already see there's huge resistance to. And to be perfectly honest, you look at the records of um, previous Irish governments, all of which had either one or other of the uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael parties in them, and they never met their targets. And those targets were an awful lot easier to achieve than the targets we're talking about now. So it is a massive, massive, massive political mountain to climb. It is. And in some ways, it's a kind of like Jen was talking about the response to the pandemic. In some ways, it's an inverse public policy response to the pandemic because the threat from the pandemic was very clear and overwhelmed hospitals and, you know, you know, temporary morgues and, and all the rest of it, you know, whereas the, 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 the pain from climate change is always not on the never never, but it's it's not immediate. So trying to kind of ram that home and make it make sense to the population has always been difficult. There are pinch points emerging around this, though, Um it is going to kind of, it, it's going to, all this risk that we've been, that we've known about for ages, political risk, climate risk, and how the two interact, they're going to crystallize in the next little while, partially around the, the things that Jen was talking about, the, N, the NDP and the Climate Action Plan, but also in parallel to the Climate Action Plan, the Climate Change Advisory uh, Council, which is the body that John Fitzgerald is part of, at some stage over the next kind of four, six, eight weeks, will deliver to the government its overall draft climate budget. And that's the kind of emissions budget. At that point, Eamon Ryan has to go off and consult with his cabinet colleagues about setting sectoral emission ceilings. These are the legally binding ones. This is the teeth that has been given to climate policy in the Climate Action Bill, Climate Action Act that worked its way through the Oireachtas over the last kind of year or so. So that is going to be a, a very potentially tricky uh, and hazardous political moment for the government. And that, I think, is when a lot of these, as I say, these risks begin to, to, to crystallise. Because while some of these uh, departments are run by green ministers, um, run by Eamon Ryan himself, you know, so when he's when he's talking to the transport minister, when he's talking to the, the energy minister, he's talking to himself. Others aren't. And, you know, the, uh, the big and obvious one is the Department of Agriculture. And what, what are we going to do about emissions from the, the, the cattle herd? And... Um, what kind of hard policy choices does that bring home? What is the impact on particularly small farmers? And um, what exactly is going to pay for any compensation measures that are given to small farmers? And, you know, is there a risk around, you know, this being seen by rural Ireland as an attack on a way of life? Um, and, you know, there are political risks inherent to those dialogues, which are, you know, emerging around the world, you know, insiders, outsiders, rural, rural, urban, all the rest of it. So this could be a real moment of risk for the government around then. And I think that if Eamon Ryan and Charlie McConnellogue aren't actually sitting down right now during summer, and if the government isn't thinking about trying to look around those corners and detect those landmines now... And if they go off during the autumn and it becomes a problem within and between the coalition parties, I think they'll reap the whirlwind and there'll be no shortage of blame to go around. I think it's unavoidable that this would be a problem between government and people. But if the government doesn't have its its act together, doesn't have its message straight and doesn't have these tricky policy positions fleshed out and thought about, that is kind of unforgivable and could become a real point of kind of genuine peril, I think, for the government in September, October, November. 
And maybe particularly in an internal party problem, both for Fianna Fáil and, and Fine Gael, Jen, given that both of those have their own sorts of rural-urban divides and resentments between differing wings of the party. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see like that the rural aspect of this becoming um, very problematic, potentially, and, and a very sticky issue. I mean, they're talking about, you know, um, retrofitting houses or upgrading houses. You can imagine that the houses, you know, where you've got kind of oil and oil and peat running oil and peat, they would be kind of in rural areas. They'd be more expensive. These are the houses, I think, that they that would need kind of the most work. And that's a real problem trying to convince people uh, in rural areas uh, who may not have the money uh, to do this. I mean, it's all very well and good. People who have the money or savings talking about, you know, green schemes or whatever. But for the vast majority of people, this is probably beyond their reach. And it's trying to find a way to bridge that gap. And like I it's goes back to the point I made earlier on, especially politically, how do you sell this to people? Um, you know, yes, people are absolutely terrified, but people have also had enough, I think, of awful news all the time. And you could hardly blame uh, sections of the public if they kind of tuned out from the terrible news that the, the, the planet's in meltdown and that they need to spend 50 grand on a new electric car and underfloor heating. Um, and like, this is going to be the problem. Like, how do you bridge that gap and how do you make this affordable um, and how do you make it realistic to to those sections of the population. And I can see it being a real bone of contention in, in those parties, um, which are already suffering kind of rural, amongst their rural voters from a perception of being perhaps too Dublin-centric. You know, every time you listen to Fianna Fáil talk about um, their potential leadership election, they always talk about how they need a Dublin leader. Um, there always has been that focus. So that is one element of it. And I think I mentioned as well, like the the electric cars, they're like, that's going to be another huge transport you know, a lot of, you know, the emissions that we see in in our current life. Um, how do you convince people if you need to meet those targets that they need to ditch their car now and move to an electric car, which could cost 25,000, 30,000 euros? Um, and it's 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 a really big ask, I think. It's a really, really difficult one. And I know that um, from talking to people in government who are at the moment, you know, preparing for the budget and preparing their figures and, and preparing this climate plan, that they're looking at kind of what's needed and they're thinking this is going to be, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we face over the next over the next couple of years. One last thought before we go, Jack. I'm looking at Cathy Sheridan's column on the opinion page in the Irish Times today. It's about Sinn Féin's commemoration last week of the 40th anniversary of the death of the hunger striker Thomas McElwee. And it kicked up quite a bit of a fuss on social media and and elsewhere because of the crime for which Thomas McElwee was convicted and that he was uh, he was in prison for at the, at, at the time of his death, uh, which was the horrific death in a firebomb of a, of a young woman. Um, does it tell us anything about how Sinn Féin still has some issues to overcome with what you might call Middle Ireland or Mainstream Ireland before it becomes completely accepted? Or are these kind of issues now just such a matter of history that they don't impact too much on the voting intentions of people? I think it, I think it it's important not so much in the specific instance, which I think will come and go. I mean, I don't think we're going to be talking about that specific tweet or this this particular commemoration in a couple of days or a week's time. But there's a general kind of, there's a general lesson to, to take from it um, for Sinn Féin and for uh, the parties that oppose them, the parties currently of government or, or you know, um, Labour and the Social Democrats as well. And that is that while I think, you know, there's obviously a large cohort of people who are attracted to, to, to Sinn Féin, either for kind of, you know, their, their specific policy stance, you know, around the housing question in particular, just for example, or because of their kind of general 
anti-government, anti-establishment stance, which which punches through and appeals to people who who believe that, you know, there is an insider-outsider dynamic going on and that Sinn Féin are the party to to tackle it. Um, but it shows that there is an ongoing vulnerability related to the, the, the culture and history of the Sinn Féin organisation and how it accommodates the history of the Troubles um, within the current manifestation of the party, which is supportive of the peace process and uh, against violence. Um, and I think that all of those cohorts um, that might be attracted to Sinn Féin, for, for one reason, have large segments within them who are uncomfortable with that, um, who are uncomfortable with the culture of commemoration. And you, you will see, I think there's a soft underbelly for Sinn Féin on this, and you will see that as it as it goes about its business commemorating the past and uh, you know acknowledging the history um that it presents multiple opportunities for uh the 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 establishment parties for want of a better construction to point this out and to point out to to middle ireland the the facts that make them uncomfortable with the Sinn Féin organization and with the history of republicanism and you know that is something that i think will you know be a thread in Irish politics for the next cycle at least and I think it'll come to a head whenever the next general election is and this will be a massive point of differentiation that uh, the establishment parties will seek to ram home because they intuit and I think that it, that they intuit correctly that there is a vulnerability in Sinn Féin around that. So um, to sum up, you know, this specific instance, not much turns on it but generally there is a vulnerability there and there is a, a, a political kind of wider strategic game at play here. What Cathy says, Jen, and I, and I quote from her from her piece here, the point is that Sinn Féin alone continues to eulogise the perpetrators and to selectively remember the past while calling for an early border poll. And it does so while calling for a shared culture of commemoration in Irish society north and south and upon the principles of mutual respect, dignity and sensitivity. And I think she has a point there about there is a certain type of language and a a very one-sided version of the events of the troubles I think in in things like those commemorations and those those tweets and the words used in them that 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 is still jarring to me anyway it may not be jarring to lots of people but it is to me yeah I, yeah and I, I was very interested to read the same point and I think that's the reason why um there's often it's so problematic I think the way uh, for some people the way Sinn Féin do commemorate um, the various different figures, and we've seen this many times um, over the last couple of years, and it's it's going to crop crop up continu- uh, continuously. And when you listen to the defence given by people like Owen O'Brien over the last couple of days, their defence basically is that you know it's their right to commemorate figures that were influential or important um, in in the movement, but that of course once you commemorate uh, certain figures, you run the risk of upsetting other families uh, or other other people who are impacted and but the problem is exactly what you say it's the it's the way you do it and it's the language that you use um and you would have to think that surely there must be a better way of doing it that doesn't always lead to this um th- these kind of issues and for, you know from my own perspective um I often wonder when I see them commemorating whoever it may be and obviously we've the example you gave this week um why they don't have why they haven't figured out a way to do it that doesn't create such heartache and angst. Because we have to remember this isn't, you know, the distant past. This is all still quite recent. It's all still very fresh. Um, And we're coming up to 
another sensitive time, I think, in the decade of centenaries. And we're going to be talking about the Civil War and all that kind of stuff. And it is a tricky area. Um, and you would have to think there there is a better way of doing it that doesn't, you know, because I think there was a criticism as well in this case of um, somebody in the background shouting up the rah. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to get behind that. And I don't think the party can defend that either. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there, there must be a better way to do it. But they, they don't seem to be keen on pursuing uh, that avenue at the moment. Right, so we shall leave it there. Thanks very much to Jen and to Jack for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Do remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast.irishtimes.com, but we'll be back very soon. Talk to you then.